the seeds of what you saw, the seeds, right? Seeds are cheap. Soil is expensive. The seeds thrown at the problem last year were extremely cheap. But the soil, the expensive part of getting into people, into the communities, into where these problems were and solving that, we need solutions as big as the problem and they're not there yet. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. We uh, we continue to suffer through our kitchen remodel precipitated by our uh, hot water line bursting in our kitchen about a month and a half ago. But it is making progress. And so when things are making progress, you can sort of begin to visualize that it will have an end. And that's been nice. <laughs> so where are you at in the pro in the the progress? Because we we haven't had an update on on the show in a couple episodes. That's so let's, true. let's let everyone know because I'm sure that's that's top question right now. Yeah, we probably didn't have an update because nobody cares. But we um we have gotten some of the cabinetry kind of moved around. We're we're rejigging the layout of the kitchen a bit. That's coming into focus. We're we're starting to get tile taken up because we've got some flooring that needs to be removed and replaced. And then some of that tile, when they did it originally, it's like the tile that's on the floor is the tile that's the backsplash, but then they kind of went hog wild on the backsplash. So there's, there was a lot of tile on the walls. And so we've got that for the most part pulled down. And then we've got plumbers coming in to do piping and to move water lines uh, because we're moving the refrigerator. And then uh, we've got a, a gas line that we kind of have to activate and somebody's got to come in and fix that. So there's like little bitty little bits of the puzzle that are starting to come together. And so, uh, as I say, you can sort of, you can sort of kind of see like where things are going now, whereas before it was all concepts. So now it's like, it's getting real and you can kind of see things take shape. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's good. I feel like it's it's exciting, right? Like it, it's unfortunate that of course this happened, like no one wants that to happen. But you get a whole new kitchen now. You get to design it, whatever. You know, there's always quirks in kitchens. You always want to fix and mess around for the next one. And you get to do that now. So there's there's that. There's that silver lining. I appreciate your optimism. It sounds like you've been speaking to my spouse is what that's like. <laughs> You and her had a whole chat about this and and compared notes and made sure that you had all your talking points down. <laughs> I just think it's that pretty much, I don't know, maybe this is a really broad statement, but I think most women would love to design like their dream kitchen. Like I'm not a cook, but I would still love to design a dream kitchen, right? Like there's things I want to get rid of in my kitchen. So I could definitely see like, if you've got a remodel going, it could be some exciting times. <laughs> yeah. Very exciting times. You, you, you nailed it. <laughs> very exciting times. Well, speaking of exciting times, um, I thought that maybe we could talk about uh, cryptocurrencies a bit, and I did not think there'd be anybody more fun to do that with than Tyrone Ross. Tyrone, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Well, uh, let me make sure that I have all of the CV accurate, and then and then uh, you can correct the record uh, probably right. after I mess this up. So right. uh, Tyrone is a man of many hats. I think it's fair to say, uh, a, a man with many interests. Uh, Tyrone hosts uh, two podcasts, one for uh, Coindesk called On Purpose, one for 
a, a group called Altruist, which is sort of a, a virtual currency uh, financial advisory platform type company. Um, he is also a financial advisor himself uh, and has pretty much shown up on all of the young advisor type national uh, lists that you could think of. Uh, so I won't list them all. Uh, but also, little known fact, uh, I have noticed a man with very strong sneaker game uh, because you, you do not seem to appear in public without a very nice, fresh <laughs> pair of sneakers. So kudos to you. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. It's actually sort of a, a new fetish, right? A new really? Thing, uh, yeah, a new vice, but fairly new. But yeah, and it, it all started with like once my career path started to change. I knew I was going to be on camera a lot. I'm like, all right, I got to stay fresh. So yeah, it's my, it's my new thing. Yeah, you're, you're well ahead of my curve. I can say <laughs> that for sure. Well, yeah. well ahead. Yeah. I actually have a, a pair of uh, older Mambas oh. that I that I bought in like 2008 or nine. Okay, and actually wore them playing basketball, so they're a little bit scuffed up. And then I I kind of got sick of jamming my fingers and twisting my ankles, so I stopped playing, and then I sort of just stuck them in the closet. And then fast forward about 10 years later, I'm looking around on eBay. I'm like, oh my god, these things are like valuable yeah. had I not worn them on a basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's how it works. It works. The collection <laughs> game is big now. Big. Well, one of your passions, Tyrone, if, if I've got my notes right, is uh, really in the cryptocurrency space and specifically cryptocurrency as it relates to financial advisory firms um, and uh, how they do or do not use uh, cryptocurrency. So I thought maybe we could we could dig in a bit in in sort of uh, broad strokes and then really start a narrow focus, like broad strokes of like just sort of explaining to people like what is the state of cryptocurrency in general in America or the world and you know at large, and then start to start to focus in on what does it mean for the financial advisory industry and their clients. Yeah. So I think why I came to crypto and why I'm so passionate about crypto is not financial advisors. I'm passionate about crypto for what it means for the underserved and especially what it means for the underserved in America. Um, you start you hear about Argentina, Venezuela and all these other places with oppressive regimes and highly inflated currencies. But um, Bitcoin and you know, what you're seeing with Ethereum and decentralized finance projects are going to be such a boon to the underserved in this country. And I'm purposely saying underserved because unbanked and underbanked has become a trope and doesn't speak to the full scope of the problem. Um, and having grown up in a home that didn't have a bank account, it grossly underestimates all you don't have access to when you just simply don't have a bank account. So I've stopped saying that. That's not in my lexicon anymore. And I think that's one of the things we do need to change. To that point, though, now as a CEO of OnRamp, which is a company that is building the technology to give advisors access in a compliant regulatory way for their clients for Bitcoin, it is amazing to me that even, you know, with with the run up that we had in 17 and even, you know, recently in 2021, 
I, I fell down a crypto rabbit hole five years ago. It is still impossible for financial advisors to have this as part of their workflow. And it's mind boggling to me, but it's great because which is why I'm building a company now and, and we're, we're trying to solve for it. But back to what you were saying, I think you reach mass acceptance before you reach mass adoption. And I think you're starting to see more acceptance. I don't think it's mass acceptance yet. You're seeing more acceptance. You're starting to see, you know, just, you know, last week, Schwab and a few other folks get in legacy names that you wouldn't normally, you know, hear. The numbers of the folks in the country that own cryptocurrency is somewhere between five and 10 percent. It's probably closer to five. Right. Um, a couple of years ago it was hovering around one percent. So you're starting to see it, it permeate. I think the retail side of it is is you don't have the retail fever that you had a couple of years ago. It's more institutional now. So the institutional adoption is there. But I think what you're seeing overall is yay or nay, folks are realizing it's not going away, right? And it's going to be here and it's just in what form, right? And Bitcoin being the most lindy, right? The lindy effect of being around and every day it lives, it gets stronger and stronger and and more robust, you start to look at it and go, all right, well, if we are in a state in, in, in financial services, especially, but just in the country overall, where you look at what is going on with Cash App, right, and their growth, and then you, you juxtapose that with Goldman saying, oh, we're going to reinstitute our trading desk for the third time in <laughs> four years or whatever. So you're starting to see, again, more acceptance, not necessarily mass acceptance, in my opinion, but I think you'll get you'll go through these phases before you get true adoption. And a lot of that is just education. Even in the advisory space, advisors are clueless, right? The, the everyday person is clueless. I had an advisor today literally was like, my client wants to send money from her daughter's Coinbase account to her account. How do I do it? What is it? Right. And Coinbase makes it as easy as can be. But that's a very privileged way of looking at it because I know better. Oh, it's easy. But I had to call them. I walked them through it. I was like, go slow. Right. So we're, we're a long way off. But I think where we are is, is the process where I think it's picking up steam and folks are realizing it's not going away. I'm actually shocked about that number. You said about 5%. That to me, I would have thought a lot more at this yeah. point, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's just because I think it's more of a younger generational um, concept right now, right? All of us, you know, if you're like a short-term investor, you know, if you see all the, the spikes and everything with Bitcoin, you're more in, inclined to get involved um, compared to maybe older generations. But yeah. I, I think, yeah, definitely in the future, we could see it increasing more on the consumer side, just as more people do finally get comfortable with it. It becomes a little bit more mainstream. Um, if I can ask you then what... This is going to be a very speculative question. I'm just going to preface that already. Yeah. But what, how, in, in, if you could predict um, when it, it would be mainstream, right? Like when Bitcoin would be able to act as like a currency where we can go to the grocery store and buy our goods and services through Bitcoin or through other, some other cryptocurrency. What would you think that timeline would be in the future from where we are today? So I'll start by saying that the simple answer is when it has its iPhone moment. Bitcoin hasn't had its iPhone moment yet, where it's just like, oh, my God. Right. I didn't know I needed something that you just invented. And now I feel like I need it because you made me feel like I need it. Right. Or it's just operating in the background. That's the first part. Second thing is. And, and this is where the learning curve comes in is Bitcoin is currency now, not really here in the U.S. They're 
for me personally, I'll never spend my Bitcoin, but I think because there is it's divisible to eight places, right? So there's something called Satoshi's and the Lightning Network, where you can go do that now, pay for a cup of coffee or whatever. What presents that from happening, I think, is less about what Bitcoin does and more about what the government does, because right now all of those transactions would be taxable, right? So, you know, I went to the grocery store and spent my Bitcoin and I bought a coffee and I got went and got a massage. Now all of that is taxable. So there's again, that just goes to prove how early we are. But to but the broader point there, I think, is the Bitcoin maximalists will say hyper Bitcoinization when we get there where the dollar's dead and all it, it's not going to happen, guys. Dollar's not going anywhere. Right. But when when there's true mass adoption and folks are comfortable using it only when those things are solved, well, I could just spend it and it's no big deal. And when it's just operating in the background and I just don't know, like I just, oh, I didn't even know I was using blockchain. It's just here. So I think we're a ways off from that, but there's more of the regulatory hurdles and things we need to get over the taxation and things like that before we really get there. But it is happening now on the Lightning Network where you can move small amounts. Because here's the thing, the the Bitcoin network is slow on purpose. It is meant to send massive amounts of value cheaply, right? So I can send $150 million for $4, right? Like now you send a wire, it's 15 to receive it, it's 30 to send it, right? So it's not really built for microtransactions, which is why the next layer, the Lightning Network, they're trying to make that possible. So if I had to put a time frame on it, I don't know. I think we can see this built out over the next five years where it's just kind of we've had a lot of the infrastructure and the regulatory and the taxation part down where it's just part of our everyday lives. It's going to come quicker than most people think. So one thing that you mentioned about uh, Bitcoin and kind of it's at least in the way you conceptualize it and its sort of place in the world is in that space of of the unbanked masses or people who don't have access to banking. What is it characteristically about Bitcoin and maybe brought more broadly about cryptocurrencies that is is fundamentally different that you think will grant more access to people who were reluctant to get into the banking industry or didn't have access to the banking industry previously? Yeah, fantastic question. And it's it, it's bothersome because it is the one inarguable use case that Bitcoin has. No one can argue its benefit to the underserved, right? But we don't focus on that. So not in the sense that it's going to make them richer, not in the sense that it is going to ultimately give them this increased knowledge of markets. It's simply access, right? So if you look over time, right, let's go all the way back to the 16th century, West African slaves had something called a susu, right? If I'm Caribbean, so if you're Caribbean, if there's any Caribbean people listening to susu, they're like, yeah, susu, right? Susu was the first blockchain. There was 10 people who said, all right, well, we all need money. We all need a bigger amount than what we have. So let's put a hundred dollars in, right? And we all need a thousand dollars. And then we'll have a schedule on when we all get that thousand dollars. I'll go first, you go last. But if you go last, you're just paying in, kind of like forced saving. So if you look at that, it was true the first blockchain. So now it's just digital. So these this is inherent to these people who are underserved because they can't walk in and get a bank account, right? So they're used to not using a bank. They don't trust banks, but Bitcoin doesn't care, right? You could just you can go to a Bitcoin ATM, right? Or you can go on packs full of local Bitcoins 
and transact value, right, with a gift card and turn that into Bitcoin and then turn that into local currency without ever walking into a bank. That's incredibly powerful. The second part of it is one of the things you don't want to be, especially in this country, is poor and barely have a bank account because it's expensive to be poor. Bitcoin and the gravity of which it is pulling our financial system into the future, if you could believe it, we still don't have a real-time payment system in the great United States of America. Bitcoin, as far as I know, <laughs> settles right now. And then every 10 minutes, there's a new block mine. And maybe I got to wait an hour or two, but I don't have to wait three to six days. If I get paid on a Friday and my landlord wants his money on Sunday and my check doesn't clear until Tuesday, I'm evicted. If he took USDC, I could send him money soon as I get paid. I could send him crypto dollars. You get paid right now. Crypto dollars exist because Bitcoin started it all. So it's less about, here's the thing, and I tell people, this is the best way I describe Bitcoin. Bitcoin is gravity, the gravity of change, right? Of how it's pulling our financial service system to be more inclusive, right? Because there have been folks that have just been financially redlined. So now, if you look at the last 12 years that Bitcoin has been in existence, look at all of the changes that have happened to our financial services system. So I don't, I don't think it gets enough credit for that. But even in the sense of being able to transfer value, me to you, nobody involved. Powerful. The immediately to, to send money to anybody right now. Super powerful. Not have to wait, you know, for KYC, AML, all of those different things. So I can go on forever with this. But then you have, if you look at Ethereum, which is a derivative of the Bitcoin blockchain, and then what is going on there with borrowing and lending and interest and all this, the financial system being recreated still goes back to Bitcoin. So it's very interesting how, and I didn't even get into folks that are, again, where they're you know, currency is being hyperinflated away and they're using Bitcoin as currency. I'll end on this note. What is happening in this country is there's a war against cash. And if I know anything about growing up in a home and being around people in communities where they don't have debit cards, credit cards, all these other things, cash, prepaid cards and gift cards are, they rule the day. If you take cash away and people are forced to use digital payments or whatever, two things happened here. One, we have a nation of folks who don't, are not digitally literate. They don't know how to transact using wallets or apps. Massive hurdle. The other thing is cash is folks who work under the table. Cash is people, again, who don't have identity, not because they want to be nefarious, but simply because they just got to this country. We all know family members and friends that came to this country and started working. They got their dollars in their hand and they made a way. And the last thing is the ability to have access at all times now. Like right at this moment, I can send the money or get the money that I need. So when you put all of that together, it is damn hard to look at Bitcoin and crypto and go, is there's nothing there, right? It absolutely is. But when you've been at the, the lower rung of this country and you look at the class issue that we have in America, we have a bigger class issue than we have a race issue, by the way. Race issue was put on Front Street last year. When we start addressing the class issue, oh man, it's going to be hard time because we have a major class issue and there are a class of people who just don't have access to any type of financial services because they are shut out. Crypto is going to force the hand of finan legacy financial systems visa, <laughs> right, to make this all inclusive.
So it's a really interesting time. So it's, it's exciting, but I just love the fact how this is going to help so many people that grew up like I did. Yeah, I kind of view it, and there's a lot of uh, things that are coming out of blockchain just in general, not just cryptocurrencies that I sort of view as the uh, a, a destructive force to borders and borders in a lot of senses, like borders between classes and access, like you're talking about where, you know, borders between having access to the bank or not having access to the bank, borders between having access to financial institutions or not, but also just borders everywhere. Because if everything is being transacted digitally, you don't have to be in any particular location Yep. to engage in the transaction. And therefore, it, it almost erases, it sort of levels the world in a sense, because anybody can transaction in the exact same medium at the exact same moment. And that, I don't even know that I have begun to conceptualize what that means. Mm -hmm. I just seem to, in my mind, see that that must be the case. Like if, if we continue to go this way, which I think is inevitable, like you know, we're, nobody's going to turn back the clock on yeah. cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, ask anybody that has been stuck up in an ATM or someone has had to actually go into a, a, a location where they weren't necessarily safe and had to get out of a car and go to an ATM and do that. All these different things where you just could text somebody and say, send me money. Right. I get it now. And again, there's Venmo, there's Cash App, there's all of that. But there's there's still those barriers to entry that are going to be broken down. But there's so many ways around this where it's going to be powerful and it's going to unlock so much access for people. And I just think that should get people fired up as opposed to scared, including our government. Absolutely. So then one question I have is, you know, you mentioned that the barriers in the first is just kind of like the cryptocurrency literacy, right? Understanding mm -hmm. what it is, you know, you mentioned in a wallet, right? You have to hold your Bitcoin in a wallet. And a lot of people may remember years ago when we had that first Bitcoin boom, you know, a lot of people kept their wallet on the USB, right? They had like the, what is it? The cold wallet. Yeah. And unfortunately, they lost that USB. And then there goes a lot of your, your money, right? All of your assets, all of your Bitcoin. And so how do you see the, the transition of in teaching people more about cryptocurrency literacy in making it a little bit more accessible, I guess? right now to to even to to all different classes to different generations everyone yeah well I, I mean if i'm passionate about nothing it is financial education right and i think this is something that all financial education should start younger right children can start picking up financial concepts at three 85 percent of your brain development right by age five is done it's it's over right so imagine if we put all these financial concepts into children and people early we have a generation right my nephews are going to grow they're not going to know what an atm is or a check or any of these things so we do need to, to skew younger now with this education because they're going to grow up in a digital world for those of us right now that are you know used to legacy tools and resources i think one of the things that has to happen is right those of us that are stewards right financial stewards of serving the community we have to do a better job one of educating our own cfpc if it's, you know cfa board all these different things of educating our own because we serve retail clients right and we could educate them there but I do think as 
PayPal, as Visa, as more of these companies get into it, they're going to realize the responsibility of educating the millions, the hundreds of millions of users that they have. I've had a, I had a conversation with Visa last week, and they are all in on this community banking idea, which is incredible, which, which they are trying to do. And they realize the education of getting people to understand hot versus cold, right? Getting them to understand the difference between, you know, your private key and your public key, all of these different things, which proves it's still a little nerdy, right? It's still a very nerdy space, right? You just got to admit that, right? The nerds rule the day, right? <laughs> like it's just, it's just what it is. Companies are making that easier, Coinbase, Robinhood or whatever. So you could just buy, but you know, and I probably shouldn't be talking about Robin Hood and education in the same, um, you know, paragraph of thought. But, you know, I do think as these larger players come into the space, they will they will, you know, trickle down that education into the masses. But I think there's going to have to be layers in it. Our schools, our financial institutions, right, our, our you know, all public institutions and private and in our government as well, embracing this and saying, all right, this is the next wave. Right. This is something that we're going to need to do because, you got folks like Facebook and Libra and all these social media companies and tech companies will take a lot of that power if they if they can. Right. And they will. So I think as, again, as we start to move towards that mass adoption, hopefully there's really, you know, constructive ways where which people can learn about what they're doing. One and two, there needs to be some engineering here where a lot of the nerdiness is removed. Right. And a lot of the, the, the interface and the design, it just makes it very easy for people to interact with it and not have to worry about my, uh, you know, 12 word seed phrase that makes no sense. Right. And then it's like, so wait a minute, I have this digital thing that you want me to write down these words on a piece of paper, but I can't lose the piece of paper. OK, so now what do I do with this hard thing that got my bit? OK, so I put it in the safety deposit box. Like what do I mean? So it's like. Go to the 21st century, go all the way back to the 20th, the 21st century, go back to the 20th century. So it's just really funny. But um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting, uh, the idea of of financial education in in the time that we live in, because it seems to me that we don't live in a time where information is lacking. Right. Yeah. So it's not it's not that there is not enough information. It's obvious that it's the way that information is being uh, yeah. delivered to people. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, how do you deliver it better? 100 percent. And that's exactly why I started my Learn to Money series, because last year when the world was burning down all around us and you had all these companies coming out, oh, we're going to Black Lives Matter and 100 million here and 200 million here and Oh, fight. We need to we need to go into the black community and we need to make sure that we're all equal. And oh, I'm like, OK, great. Now what changes? Financial services spend 17 billion dollars more on marketing financial services, less than one percent on education. I wish somebody would convince me that that's not on purpose. Right. Like, you know, there's so there was so much data out there that showed that we just failed being very inclusive and open with our financial education of America, right? 60% of, of folks are financially illiterate, right? People don't speak the language of money. This is a failing, independent of party, class, color, whatever. We just have a bunch of people in this country who don't speak the language of money. And if you do, it's such an inherent advantage. It's almost not fair. So why aren't we starting this in schools as early as possible? Not that stupid stock picking game that we all played as seniors in high school. <laughs> and as you matriculate through school, the curriculum should change 
so that no matter if you are taking home ec or science or math or history, money is woven throughout. And then as you're a senior in high school, you're learning about APRs and interest rates and filling out student loans and FAFSA and all that stuff. Then when you're a senior in college, it's about what the hell a W-2 versus a W-9 versus a 1099, right? Like this should be embedded. So it's almost like the story about the fish in the water, right? Well, how's the water today, guys? Right? Water? Didn't even know we were in water. What are you talking about? Right. You shouldn't. Money shouldn't be this big, hairy thing from the time you, you're born. It should just be. All right. Oh, money. Every child born attached to your Social Security number should be a government index fund or baby bonds or whatever. And just like your Social Security follow your life, that baby bond is attached to that. And then when you go into a school or whatever, you get an account open in your name that is attached to that Social Security number and that account. That the government, I mean, that bond that the government gave you, they teach you how to take that bond, put it inside of that account, and you track that your whole life. And you have to go through and click off these different things. And when you turn 21, if you want to touch this account that we gave you that was 5000 now it's 55000 you better have gone through this process, and then you get access to that money. He's, this isn't groundbreaking stuff. I'm not Elon Musk, right? We're not landing rockets. That's very easy. We should be able to do that. The truth is we just don't care enough. And I think everybody needs to say that. We don't care enough because we'll storm the, the Capitol and take the streets for some other stupid stuff. But education, hungry children, homelessness, all this stuff. Nah, yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of what it is. Right. So I think we have a situation in this country where there's haves and have nots. That's not OK. Haves and have mores is fantastic. Right. So we can't have people that have financial education and others that don't. Right. Like that's just not fair. And so with my learn to money series is very basic. We want to do 10 videos jargon free of me talking to the camera. What is money? And you should understand every word that is coming out of my mouth. And then we're going to do what is credit. And you should understand every and it's five to six minutes. You can watch it with the family. We'll pair it with curriculum and we want to get it in the schools. And we did a trailer and the pilot it's been incredibly well received. Time Warner saw it. You know, we had conversations with them, the NBA, so on and so forth. Every single person to a person said that's what it should look like. It should feel that way. It should just be. And I watched it with my kids. My kids love it or whatever. So why can't we do that? <laughs> like, you know, and, and if we if we put that much effort into it and really focus on leaving a legacy as opposed to what's attached to our resume, then we'll really start to have an effect and say, all right. What can we accomplish in the next generation of children in this country, right? And that's what worried me most. And again, I don't want to make this a political activist thing, but that's what worried me the most about this country the last year or so is what are we showing our children? Like, what, what, are, what are we leaving for them? Are we inspiring leadership? Are we getting them the tools that they need so that every kid has the opportunity to be a lawyer? or a doctor, right? Or a politician or a financial advisor. Are we are we arming our children with that? Or are we arming them with discord and hate and visions of 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 disillusion and, and anger? And so that's the main thing with it. And I am by saying this, and which is the which is the honest to God truth, the seeds of what you saw, the seeds, right? Seeds are cheap. Soil is expensive. The seeds thrown at the problem last year were extremely cheap. But the soil, the expensive part of getting into people, into the communities, into where these problems were and solving that, we need solutions as big as the problem, and they're not there yet. 
So I just want to do my small part and hopefully people jump in behind it. and We can just leave a, a wave of change in the country. Yeah, I think it's super cool. And it's interesting. That's something that Rachel and I have been talking about over the last year, too, of, of you know, we're 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 as exercised as anybody about the issues that were kind of laid bare over the last year, but equally concerned that nothing will change because the thing that it seems to us has to happen to make change is not, it's not actually a very sexy thing Mm because it's like a, it's a one-on-one, one person to the next person thing, very much akin to, or in line with what you're describing of like having a program and then doing it in one school and then doing it in the next school or doing it in your family and then doing it in the next family Yep. and demystifying things that really are holding too large a portion of the population back just because of the way that it's packaged up, you know, like, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, investing just generally is sort of packaged up as like, you've got to be an expert in put and call options, not how to balance the budget or how to, how to, how to save a little bit of money or compounding of interest, negative or positive for you, those sorts of basics. I agree. I couldn't agree more. It's, and it's everyone, and here you don't talk to anyone that says, yeah, this, we should do this, right? No one, no, no, we no, it have to be too hard. Everyone agrees we should do it, but for whatever reason, right? Like we just have it. And I think everyone just needs to get on the same page. But I do think we need a president to run and say, nope, here's what my policy is going to be. There's 21 states in this country that require a personal finance class, all 50, day one, right? And we're going to make sure that not only is that going to happen, but we're going to fund it because I've traveled all around this country doing financial education, right? And 21 states, I think, require it. I think there's only 11 or 12 or so that actually provide the funding and the training (laughs) for something so important. We all touch money every day. All 50 states, starting in kindergarten, day one, 100 days, whatever you want to lay it out. But that would be day one for me. Right. This is what we're doing. Right. And we're going to we're going to completely, you know, to our school system from the bottom up. And I don't care what that number is. We just printed 1.9 trillion now to give people more money. All right, it'll take us $600 billion. So what? Argue about it. I'm here, right? Who's going to argue about us doing that? So I think we need a politician with the spine and a commitment to it. And if they really care, right? Because that transcends class, party, wherever. It's just good for America. So I want to ask you about something. It's a little, which I mean this in the kindest way possible, but I think it's a little bit of a contradiction for you in in things that you're involved in. Okay. So on the one hand, what you've just described, uh, which is a really cool effort, uh, you should be totally commended for. And on the other hand, um, kind of the business ventures that you're involved in, trying to help financial advisory firms get into cryptocurrency, figure out how they can have pl- platforms that can utilize cryptocurrency. Is it fair to say that the financial advisory industry as a whole has been part of the problem, not necessarily part of the solution in 100%. terms of the educational piece that you're talking about? Do you yeah, think there's, yeah. for you, is there a tension or do you feel like, no, no, it's all it's all just two sides of the same coin and you're fighting the same fight on both sides? No, it's that's a really good point. And I've called our industry to task and I've said it, right? I've, I've complicit. We help rich people make, grow, protect, and transfer their wealth. We we are we are the stewards of inequality, right? In this country, it's just what we do. And 
you know, from from the complicated investment strategies to the tax planning to all of these different things, you help people hoard wealth and create it. And then that creates this ability for people to cut themselves off from everyone else. Right. Money is a is a is a shelter. Right. I, if I have enough money, I can create the life that I want to separate myself from whoever it is and create this nice little bubble. That's what advisors do every day. Right. And I, and I do think, I've also said that I think in five years time will also be the most beloved industry in the world because the truth is now you want somebody to talk to you at a party, not to talk to you at a party. You say, I'm a financial advisor. They'll walk away. Right? Like, uh, don't want to be next to this guy, girl, is this party. So that so we're not really liked. And I think for, in the, from the public and just in general for that reason. But one of the things that I feel like is really important for me is, is that duality of an industry that is complicit, but I also see so much promise to change it. So I want my colleagues to say, look, man, right? We go to these conferences and we pat each other on the back and everyone's drinking and you're spending more money at dinner than people's rent. Two miles from here, 19% of the kids live in poverty. Can we invite some of the community in? Can we get into the schools? And I've started to do that. And I started to make that as part of my writer, so to speak, that I'm not gonna come speak at your conference unless you do something for children unless you do something to combat these things that I care about. So it's one thing to point out the problem, but you have to be the solution, right? And I'm like, you know what? I can't call people to task and not do it myself. So even with some of my speaking fees, I'll say, all right, well, pay me half and half has to go to No Kid Hungry or Feeding America, right? Or WallStreetBound.org, all of these different things, because it's, it's very easy to make it me, 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 me. It's a very me, me industry. Right. Like it just is. But if we get so many powerful, smart, rich, connected people to go, all right, let's change that to empathy. Right. And giving. Oh, man. Right. And who should it come from? Right? It should come from financial services. So, yeah, it is an interesting duality. It was very uncomfortable at first, especially when you when you're born with a PhD like I was right, poor, hungry and driven when you come from nothing. And now all of a sudden you're surrounded by money and then you're like, wait a minute. Right. This person that I'm talking to has on more money than in my parents bank account. It's hard to justify that. Right. And, it's, and even more so as a black man. So looking at all of those things, I was like, you know what? I need to be the change I want to see. And that's kind of what I speak to and try and work for now. Well, I appreciate you uh, tolerating that question. And no. and that was pretty much the answer I was expecting. So, <laughs> And I think and I think, you're, look, I'm not exonerating us. We're lawyers and lawyers are equally a part of the problem, right? Like uh, lawyers, by and large, do work for wealthy people because they're the people who can afford to pay legal fees. And then that leaves an enormous amount of the population yep. with outside of the access, not just to legal services, but outside of access to very good quality legal services. Because yeah. there is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bell curve. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, there, there is very good and there's also very bad. And so, um, you know, not having access to very, very good legal services is a problem, generally speaking. I think we think of it a lot in terms of the criminal justice system, just because that is where a lot of poor folks uh, interact with the law on a real personal level, but it goes way, way, way beyond that. Yeah. There's so many personal and financial ways that people interact with the law in and they're trying to do it on their own. Whereas when wealthy people are interacting with the law in somewhat comparable situations, they're not doing it alone. It's not because they're so much smarter than the poor person. They're not. Inherently, they're not smarter. They just have somebody there to kind of guide them through the thicket that is the legal system. So I, I you know, I don't exonerate the legal system because we're 
we're similar to the financial advisory yeah. problem, right? Like we're, we're part of the problem too. Yeah, absolutely. We're all in cahoots. We'll, we'll fix it. We'll fix it little by little, one by one. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you then uh, about your efforts in getting financial advisors to kind of get on the the crypto kind of blockchain train. What, what are some of the hurdles that you're seeing and, and how are you seeing those things kind of start to come down? Yeah, there's there's lots of hurdles. Um, there's even more after the 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 uh, SEC's recent risk alert two weeks ago. <laughs> but um, there are a few things. I think one is education. Advisors just don't know what they can and cannot say, what they can and cannot do. And our best and brightest are clueless on this new frontier asset class. Is it digital gold? Is it speculative? Is this? Is that? How do I value it? You know. And again, some of the SEC wants to sit. They, Valuation methodologies, they want to know that. So I think there's an education barrier. There's also an access barrier in terms of compliance and, and regulation, right? So there are true qualified custodians now for RIAs, but there is a structure problem that I'm learning every day building the solution for RIAs to actually custody on behalf of RIAs, master accounts, sub accounts, seamless account opening. That's a barrier. The other barrier is the retail experience for crypto is amazing, right? It is beautiful. It is fast. There's so many options. And then I go interact with your legacy tools, your Schwab's, your Fidelity's, or whatever. It sucks. I experienced that firsthand. My clients are like, you got to figure it out. I'm using this so much better. Last thing, most important thing is none of it goes into Fort Knox. You know what Fort Knox is and if financial advisors workflow, because if I can't financial plan, model, bill, performance reporting, all these other things, doesn't matter to me. Can't see it. Can't do anything about it. So again, amazing that five years in, the tools for financial advisors are extremely minimal. They're bad at best. It's opaque. So dealing with it every day now, there are a lot of, it's getting better, but we're still a ways off. Um, and when my company launches, we'll make it a lot better. But one of the things that's really important for people to understand is whether you're a whether you work with an advisor now, I would say be patient, right? They're working with minimal resources. Feel free to guide them and advise them just in terms of your experience away from them or whatever. But be patient. The tools are coming. If you're an advisor, you won't get fired for not putting your clients into Bitcoin. I hate when I hear that. You will get fired because the client comes into your office with their kid and the kid is fired up and the parent bought some and you're the advisor and you go, this is stupid. It's baby brains. It's going to zero. And the kid is going to look at the parent and go, I'm firing this idiot the minute I get these assets. Or if the kid is not in there, any client is just going to go, all right, well, well, I thought you were, you told you, you pitched me on this fiduciary thing, right? Like when you, when I signed with you, now all of a sudden you're just dismissing something that over one, five, 10 years, right? Best risk adjusted returns up a billion percent. Paul Tudor Jones is talking about it. It's always on CNBC, but you're the only bright one who thinks that it's right. So advisors don't want to be that advisor, right? I encourage all advisors to be conversant. Just take the questions, Try and figure out what the client is doing and why. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Client, when you walked in here, your risk tolerance was a two. Bitcoin's a 12. What happened? Right? 
Like, was it the family outing? Was it the vacation? What, where'd you hear about Bitcoin? Then all of a sudden, right, it's, you're coming in talking about it. Reprofile that client immediately, right? Like what changed here? So once you do that, you're tying the client back to what their goals are, right? It all, my mentor always says is tie the client back to their, no matter where they go, tie them back to their goals, right? And I think if advisors do that, what they'll realize is, man, I'm not even really talking about blockchain and mempools and SHA-256 and Satoshi. I'm talking in this area of competence that I have, planning, risk tolerance, investor policy statements. And then the client feels as though, all right, well, they leave going, all right, well, that was good. My advisor's trying, right? And then the client feels like they can help the advisor out. Well, she really felt, you know, she she felt like she was on page with me, right? I feel like, all right, this is why I hired her. Now, you know, so it's let so I think advisors need to understand that. And I said this a long time ago, as far as wealth management space, right? Broker dealers, RIA, so on and so forth, we're gonna be the last in the pool, the absolute last, right? That person where everyone's in the pool, and they're just sitting there, just watching everybody sipping, you know, iced tea, just watching everybody have a good time. And they'll, you know, hang out at the kiddie pool and put their feet in. And then eventually when everyone's ready to go home, they get in the pool, right? That's what wealth management is going to do. But you have to look at all the things that advisors have to deal with, right? They're U4, which is essentially your credit card as an advisor. You don't want that dinged up, right? Because you said or did something stupid. Now you, you get kicked out of the business, right? Three things advisors want, right? They want to get paid, right? They want to keep their jobs, right? And they don't, well, and they don't want to hire you, right? A lawyer and go, oh, I have this issue, right? So they don't want to get sued or fired. So I think it's it's exciting what's happening in the RA space. I think you're starting to see some broker dealers get in. But when you have the conversations behind the scenes, everybody's like, I don't know. <laughs> right? Are you still? So we're a long way off, but we're getting there. And it's exciting because more financial advisors are starting, you know, to realize they need to just simply start first educate to prepare your practice practice management i completely agree i think that's that when you when you take it back and even this we see this from the legal perspective right cryptocurrency and taxation it's a very new space um it when it first started you know really becoming big a couple of years ago i started downloading all the irs notices all the procedures i wanted to read up on this because i was fascinated by it and, and i kept thinking to myself this is going to be big someday like you said this yeah. is going to catch on at some point i want to be ahead of the curve i want to know all this and then you sit down you're like oh my goodness and i'm saying that like with like my law degree in the background and i'm just like i'm banging my head on the table trying to understand yeah. all of this but it's just it's the point of then understanding you know get get little basics going right understanding here's the basics here's where you get started bring it back into your practice area i completely agree that that's definitely the way to go for advisors yeah. um one thing I, I you mentioned earlier i kind of wanted to hone in on i've been wanting to ask you this question is you know we talk about custodians holding mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and I see that as almost a contradiction to the movement of cryptocurrency in general, just opening up spaces because, you know, it's 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 supposed to be removing financial institutions from the picture. And now we're giving this the the Bitcoin to some financial institution as a custodian from there. You know, they could lend it out like like Blockfly or whatever. But now you've got this third party. And of course, you're signing all the liability waivers when you're giving them this, your, mm -hmm. your Bitcoin. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And is is that another barrier to it, to it? Or do you think that's actually 
an easier way for people to get involved in the cryptocurrency because you do have a third party kind of helping you out along right. the way? Yeah, that, that's such a great question because again, is if you are a, a crypto hippie, as I call myself, right? Like you think about introducing third parties and the financialization of Bitcoin, which you knew was coming. It makes it easier for sure. But you're kind of like, oh, it's not the point of this, guys. <laughs> like, just this isn't it. But I do think it helps. And the financialization of it means that Wall Street sees dollar signs. And you're going to get qualified custodians and things like that. But to what we would go back, you know, in the, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about the education. What's, what advisors don't know yet that I found out was when I was working with clients who own crypto, they were young and tech savvy. They're like, you will never custody my Bitcoin and bill on it, buddy. I'll pay you for your advice. You're not touching my crypto, right? So there's advisors are going to realize that once they get all set up with custody, right? The 20, 30 year olds are going to go, no, nope, I'm good. <laughs> right? Like I got it somewhere else. I'm good. I'm doing everything myself. So um, I do think that's what we're going to see. But I think what you start to look at though, is where's the wealth concentrated that 50 and up, right? Retirement accounts, legacy institution type of stuff. And that's where all of the money is. So that's where all the, you know, the, the custodians are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, let's do this, right? So they're setting up for the financialization of Bitcoin and we're there. But to your point, the true value is in holding it and being part of the crypto economy and what that means. So like any other asset class, you'll have people who just kind of deal with it on their own. Who, oh, I want to own individual stocks. I don't want an ETF. I want a mutual fund. I don't want to use a third party manager. So this would be somewhat similar to that. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I think it's the it's the Wall Street packaging up of a thing that they think can have value and then they oh, can yeah. charge you for the package. Cool. And that okay. it was inevitable and it's going to continue. But I think yeah. also uh, we're probably only at the very, very tip of the iceberg on these things. And nobody has a monopoly on yeah. any of this. Nobody does. It, nope. It's even hard to know whether Bitcoin is like is that the currency or is that just AOL? Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's arguable, right? Like there are people who like, well, what if this is just the first version of it, right? Maybe it's, you know, so that's it. And that's a valid argument. Folks like myself would argue vehemently against it, but I'm open to that as well. Like it could be, right? But when you, you know, it's funny, I, I keep this book handy, right? And folks can't see it, but it's called Crypto Assets. Everything that has come after Bitcoin has been some type of derivative of it. So it kind of like it leans into that argument a bit, but I could see that. Sure. I mean, there's really smart people walking around. They could create something else like you can't like oh, discount that. Right. That, that could absolutely happen. So, yeah, there's and it just proves how early we are. The oldest the oldest crypto is 12 years old. Right. So, you know, it's like, what we look at anything that was 12 years old. How is it doing? Right. Like, so it's you, you never know. It's going to evolve. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 Like you everything. Never, you never know. It could be Dogecoin. Right. That's the real winner. <laughs> it, could it could be. Who, who knows? You it's heard it day. here. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I, I will mark this day down on my counters. The day that I bought Dogecoin on Rachel's recommendation. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> well, I uh, we could uh, we could chat with you all day long about this stuff. It's it's uh, very interesting to us, uh, and we very much appreciate you lending some of your time and expertise. Where can people find you if they're trying to find you? Um, I don't want to waste time on that. All I would ask if you made it to this this point in the podcast, go to nokidhungry.org and feed a hungry child. They could find me wherever. I'm not going to waste time on that. Nokidhungry.org, help me feed hungry children. If I do that, that's fine. I, I'm, I love that. I'm not going to waste the time on that. I love it. Well, <laughs> we'll 
We'll put your contact info in the show notes and the link to No Kids Hungry. I love it. Uh, love because it. I think so much for that. those are both very good things. Well, Absolutely. again, we, we appreciate you very much. Thanks so much for doing it with us. Absolutely. It's always good for folks like myself to be able to, with a, with a level IQ to talk to attorneys. So thank you for having me. <laughs> love and light to you. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.